0: Tonight we turn again to Isaiah 11, where we conclude our three-part series with meditations on the study of Isaiah 11, the King of Glory. Tonight, Isaiah 11, verses 10 through 16. Here with me as I read the Word of God, beginning at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people's. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish, and Judah's enemies will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile to Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will lay hands on Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over their Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that men can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. Christmas is a time in which we remember and celebrate and stand in wonder and awe afresh at the first coming of Jesus Christ, the Incarnation, God with us. As we heard this morning, God in the straw. But the prophecies of Jesus' coming not only foretold his first coming, they also foretold his second coming, his second coming in power and great glory, not this time in humility and lowliness in the straw, but rather for all to see, for every eye to behold, and to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. The second half of Isaiah 11 clearly points to the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ. Our text reminds me, of the climactic concluding stanza of the familiar carol, Joy to the World. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Isaac Watts clearly understood the biblical doctrine of the ultimate universal reign of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Another of Watts' great hymns, based on Psalm 72, puts it in this way, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run, his kingdom stretch from shore to shore, till moons shall wax and wane no more. Again, Watts is declaring the universality of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And here in Isaiah 11, we see that universal kingdom of Jesus Christ foretold. And I would like us to just look at our text under two main headings. The first is this, the second coming of Jesus is described in terms of gathering the elect from every nation. The second coming is described in terms of gathering the elect of God, the people of God from every nation. Look at verses 10 and 11 where we especially see this, but we pick up the theme again in verses 12 and Later on at the end at verse 16. But look at verses 10 and 11. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from these various nations that are listed in verse 11. The root of Jesse. He is the banner which will stand in verse 12, it's told, He will raise a banner for the nations. The root of Jesse, obviously, being Jesus Christ. That phrase refers back to Isaiah 11, verse 1, where we saw two weeks ago a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse connotes humility, lowliness, but now, by the time we come to verse 10, The nations are rallying around this banner which God will raise up and which he will use to convene this vast assembly. The peoples, the nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. And this picture is given of the the remnant from Judah and Israel, And yet it goes far beyond that. It reaches to the elect, the people of God, of all nations and tribes and language and tongues. And they're all drawn together to assemble on that day. Notice the repetition of the phrase in verse 10. In that day, verse 11, in that day. This is no ordinary day. This is that day, that great day when Jesus Christ returns and all his elect are gathered together to him, the second day. Coming of Christ. The people, the nations, the remnant. Interestingly, it says in verse eleven, In that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left. The first time, most likely being referred to is the Babylonian captivity, when the remnant was returned to the land after they had been scattered for 70 years. And and this time, this second time, but this is a far more glorious time, this time the remnant being gathered together, that Old Testament theme of the remnant is now, in a sense, given its ultimate meeting as the final generation of the elect, the people of God from every nation. You see, the remnant that originally was described in terms of Judah and Israel and the remnant in that sense being brought together. Now, it's got a worldwide scope to it. The nations listed here are representative of the whole earth. Lower Egypt, Assyria, Upper Egypt, Cush. Of course, they're the nations primarily surrounding Israel. But that last phrase of verse 11, and from the islands of the sea, takes you beyond Egypt, beyond Cush, beyond Babylon, beyond Assyria. And from the perspective of the limited geographical knowledge of ancient Israel, who is included in the islands of the sea? It would go out to Italy, which, of course, in the Mediterranean world, those coastlands might be perceived as islands, maybe Spain, northern Africa, but, of course, even beyond that, we know. And, of course, the geography of that day and age didn't include the United States or China or places like Australia, New Zealand. These nations listed here are spoken from that perspective of ancient Palestine, but stand for the elect being gathered from the ends of the world. Of course, the New Testament makes this abundantly clear. In Matthew chapter 24, in Jesus' famous discourse about the end times, in verses 30 and 31, he says, At that time the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Jesus says, they will see the sign of the Son of Man. And really, the sense of that phrase, they will see the sign of the Son of Man. It it doesn't mean it's going to be like a Batman sign, you know, up on a cloud somewhere. It's a genitive construction that means the sign which is the Son of Man. Most commentators take it that way. In other words, it's not a Batman sign. It's Jesus Christ himself. He will be clearly seen by all. The sign which is the Son of Man. The banner that Isaiah 11 talks about being raised up. Around him the nations will rally. All the elect of God, Jesus is saying, gather together at the trumpet call of God. This idea of the banner, it always brings to my mind the final battle in J.R.R. Tolkien's famous trilogy and the final book, interestingly being called The Return of the King. If you've read the book, it's even better than the movies are. Tolkien, with his wonderful way with words, describes the Battle of Pelennor Fields, which is the last battle that takes place between evil and good. And, and the forces of good are arrayed, but the forces of evil seem to be overpowering them. And then, just when things are at their worst, it seems all the black ships of the Corsairs of Umber come up the river toward the city, and all the hearts of all the good soldiers begin to faint until on the foremost ship this banner is unfurled and it's the banner of the city of Gondor but this time it has the seven silver stars above it which indicate the high king and so somehow out of the out of the jaws of defeat there's this banner that's unfurled and Tolkien talks about this uh the way he writes, and the mirth of the, of the Roarim, this uh, one group, was a torrent of laughter and a flashing of swords, and the joy and wonder of the city was a music of trumpets and a ringing of bells. Reminds me of tonight, using every instrument we can. And Tolkien is, of course, describing what we would see as more fully fulfilled in the nations being gathered when the banner of Jesus Christ, the banner of Jesse, the root of Jesse, will be raised for the nations. And the the exiles of Israel and the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth, all those who are of the faith of Abraham, the children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, gathered together on that day. Revelation describes it again and again. Revelation, you know, if you studied it, it's a difficult book to understand. But I take the view that Revelation, we are to understand it as a recapitulation, as a reiteration again and again of the perspective of what's happening in this world. And again and again in the book, we're brought up to the very end time when Jesus Christ returns. And as the book continues, the clarity of the return of Christ grows clearer and clearer with every time it's told. And so there are different places in the book where we see the same event being described. And so in Revelation 7, verse 9, John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. This idea of this great multitude from all around the world. Then in chapter 11, verse 15, we read, that phrase that we heard sung this morning, and there were loud voices in heaven which says, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. You can hardly break out into the hallelujah chorus as you sing that, as you say it. And then finally in chapter 19, where the the final coming of Christ is described in the greatest clarity of all, we read in verse 1 After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. There's this great description of the rider in the white horse coming to make war. Obviously, it's a description, a metaphorical description of the second coming of Jesus Christ. We see then in Isaiah 11 this prophecy of the universal reign of Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel to the nations in this age, and then when Jesus returns through the final gathering of his elect people of every tribe and language and people and nation, all to the glory of his name. Secondly, we see in Isaiah 11, the second coming of Jesus is described in terms of the subjugation of all enemies of God's people. The subjugation of all enemies of God's people. Beginning of verse 12, we see this. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. So there's that same theme of gathering the elect. But notice what we find in the following verses. Verse 13, Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. What is this about Judah and Ephraim and this jealousy? Well, Ephraim was one of the most powerful tribes to the north in Israel, and Judah was the most powerful tribe in the south. It's kind of like... The eagles against the giants. You know, they're only an hour and a half between them. You know, they're brother Americans. And if America were to go to war, and you can imagine if the members of the eagles and the giants would be on the same army, well, they would be fighting together, of course. And uh, it may be a bad analogy, but the point is Ephraim and Judah, who are always vying against one another, are now united. And in verse 14, the they is a united nation, Judah and Ephraim, together, of course, with all the other tribes. They will swoop down to Philistia, the Philistines, who are always so strong in, in the west, along the coastlines of Mediterranean. And together they will plunder the peoples of the east. And then also it's told that they will lay hands on Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. What is this warfare being described here? What is... It's a figurative description of the subjugation of all the peoples of the earth to Jesus Christ. The banner for the nations who is going to come in glory and every tribe and language and people and nation will be subject to Jesus Christ. They will be gathered together. It's a picture of the fulfillment when Jesus returns. You might say, well, Isn't this looking to Babylon and when the exiles return from there? Well, yes, that was a partial fulfillment of this. And some would even say, well, don't we look for a literal fulfillment of this with the people of Israel nowadays, maybe with what's going on in the Middle East? No, I don't believe that's the case. I believe that it's describing the people of God who are fulfilled now in the church The people of God from every nation and tribe. And this great subjugation of all nations is carried out by Jesus Christ. It's carried out now in history before he returns as the gospel is preached. And people from every tribe and language and tongue come to willingly bow before Jesus Christ and give him their lives and trust in him as their Savior and Lord. Certainly, it will be consummated and ultimately fulfilled when he returns in glory and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The message of Christmas is not only that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Yes, it is that. Thanks be to God. It's not only that he came in lowliness and humility, it is also that he will come again in power and great glory, and all the nations of the world will be subject to him forever. Well, how do we apply this text to our lives? I would see a twofold application. The first is this Have you bowed in humble faith and submission to Jesus Christ? Have you bowed before this great banner of the nations. Right after chapter 11, we see chapter 12, a short description of saving faith. I'm not going to read all of it, but just let me read the beginning of it. Chapter 12, verse 1. In that day, you will say, I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Notice the personal nature of the faith being described here in this song of triumph and faith, this song of praise. It's not enough, you see, to have a form of faith or a form of religion that is merely a matter of mentally giving assent to certain truths. It's not enough merely to stand up in the worship service and repeat the Apostles' Creed and say, well, I believe that in some way as a mental... Assent to some truth. Yes, that's important. That's necessary. There must be mental assent, but there must be more than that. There must be whole person response mind, emotions, will, heart, whole person embracing of Jesus Christ by faith, giving him your life, submitting to him as your Lord, crying out, Lord, you were angry with me because of my sin. I stood as an enemy of yours, but because of Jesus Christ, now your anger is turned away. You have comforted me. God is my salvation. This is not just some kind of distant declaration. God is a Savior, and I know Christmas is about Jesus Christ coming to earth, and I know about that. You know, there must be a personalization of it. Being raised in the church, and I speak to you young folks especially here, being raised in the church is a great blessing. But it's also a dangerous thing in the sense that because you are around really holy things a lot of the time, because you are here enjoying the blessings of the gospel light that God gives as a covenant child, and hearing the truth of God, and knowing something about God, and week after week, and as your parents talk to you about these things, and as you grow up around these things, there's often the misconception that somehow you get these things by osmosis. You know, isn't there something in biology about cells, you know, getting food or nutrient by osmosis? It just kind of leaks in through the membrane of the cell. Well, that's not how Christianity is received. Christianity has to be personally received. Jesus Christ has to be personally trusted. No one is saved by virtue of someone else's faith. And if you haven't personally entered in to the realities of these things, then my call to you is diligently seek God. Seek God. Lay hold of him. Ask Seek, knock, and the door shall be open to you. Don't just be satisfied with a distant, impersonal knowledge about doctrine and truth and who Jesus Christ is. Enter in personally. It's the most important thing of any person's life to personally embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The second application is this. And really, this is a reminder to all of us. Are you seeking to be a world Christian? A world Christian is a phrase from David Bryant's 1979 book, In the Gap, that InterVarsity book that was a very important book in terms of world Christianity. Not every Christian is called to be a missionary. We acknowledge that. But every Christian is called to be a world Christian. We've seen something of the worldwide purposes of God in Isaiah chapter 11, the universal reign of Jesus Christ. A world Christian is someone who is so gripped by the glory of God and the glory of God's global purpose that he chooses or she chooses to align himself with God's mission to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea, Habakkuk 2.14. Everything a world Christian does, he does with a view to the hallowing of God's name in the world and the coming of God's kingdom among all the peoples of the earth. Now certainly that's a wide perspective, that's a wide goal. It involves our time, our money, our resources, our priorities. And maybe for you that means considering going on a short-term missions trip. Maybe it means taking a more active interest in the local missions of our church to the city. Maybe it means starting a neighborhood Bible study. Maybe it means just getting on your knees more and praying or using something like Operation World, which gives you a description of all the nations of the world and the state of Christianity in all of them and to begin praying more with a global purpose in view. Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Becoming more of a world Christian in our perspective, in our heart, for the glory of God to be made known because one day it's going to be all over with and Jesus Christ is going to return. And we only have a limited time to use what God has given us to this great end of making Jesus Christ known to the whole world. Let us all seek to more and more be world Christians to the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Amen. Father, we thank you for the picture we've been given of the root of Jesse of the great banner for the nations of Jesus Christ and the glory of his worldwide universal kingdom that is coming and that has come to some extent and is continuing to advance even under fire, even as the gates of hell seek to oppose her. And yet we know that that will not stop the church. We know that We have a great author and finisher and captain of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would stir us afresh to this great end, this great goal, the glory of the fame of God through Jesus Christ in this earth. Father, we pray that you would help us not only to remember with thanksgiving and to look back in faith at what Jesus Christ did, but to look ahead in faith to what Jesus Christ continues to do and what he will finally complete when he comes again in glory. We pray in his name. Amen.